Welcome to New Books in World Affairs. This is your host, Christian Peterson. And today I have the good fortune of speaking with Ed Conway about his new book, The Summit, Bretton Woods, 1944, John Maynard Keynes and the Reshaping of the Global Economy. Ed Conway, welcome to the show. Thank you. Good to speak to you. It's nice to speak with you. Uh, Before we begin, I was wondering if you could give the listeners a little bit of information about your background. Sure. Well, I'm uh, I'm a journalist uh, and uh, I cover kind of economic journalism. So I've over the course of the last 10, 11, 12 years or so, I kind of lose track. I have been variously a newspaper journalist. I was with uh, the Daily Telegraph uh, in London. And uh, I worked at the Daily Mail for a bit, uh, and nowadays I I cover economics for for Sky News, uh, which is a kind of UK twenty four hour news network. And I also I write a column at the Times, um, so the Times of London rather than the New York one. And I, I cover kind of um, well the whole gamut of economic stories. And obviously, you know, as you know, the last five years, five six years has been absolutely fascinating when it comes to economics because there's been this massive um, uprooting of a lot of the things we believe in. You know, we had the, the financial crisis, we've had the euro crisis, we've had all of these problems over the course of the last few years, which, which have, I think, changed a lot of people's perceptions about how the, how the world economy works and has, has kind of um, ignited some more interest in when there have been crises in the past, how have we dealt with them, and 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 you know what's our what are the lessons from 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 history? And that's kind of how I how I got into the the you know the idea of Bretton Woods and this, the whole story. I was covering all of this stuff on a day to day basis, thinking, God, this is fascinating. You know, the Euro crisis was happening, uh, the financial crisis. I remember being in Washington at the time of um, September two thousand and eight, which was just when obviously Lehman Brothers had just collapsed, and there was. Uh, some UK banks, which had been kind of semi-nationalised, RBS and uh, and um, HBOS, which was uh, um, and Northern Rock was the famous bank that had a run in the UK. And there was all of this chaos happening, and you suddenly it, it was a very kind of quiet, quite sedate thing to be covering. You know, it was for a while economics, and then suddenly it became very dramatic, um, and you got a sense that you were in the middle of you know, historic moments and things were happening that, that would for many years in the, into the future be, be discussed. And obviously the financial crisis was one of them. And it, people were drawing lots of analogies with what happened in the 1930s, kind of rightly, because that was the last time there was such a great crisis. And uh, on that basis, I spent a lot of time thinking about the analogies there, there have been lots of books about what happened back then in the 30s. Lords of Finance is a great one by by Leoquad Ahmed. That's that one. You know, obviously goes into how everything kind of uh, broke down and and what happened in the 1920s, essentially in the 30s that led to this. But there hadn't been all that much written about. Well, how did they kind of put the pieces back together again? And that's kind of how I but found myself coming to the story of Bretton Woods. And then the more I thought about it, the more interesting the story came, became. And I, be, I, I kind of found myself a few years, a couple of years after 2008, I, I was in the States, actually. I, um, I did a course, a master's at, at Harvard, at the Kennedy School. And, and one of the courses I did there was in economic history. Uh, and so I 
I was interested again in like, why do we keep having these crises? Why do we never learn? And I started, spent a bit of time <laughs> studying and, um, I just found myself going back to the history. And obviously when you're a journalist, you just do day-to-day stories and, you know, you, you, you're aware that there's this fascinating stuff going on, but it's quite ephemeral. You never really get beneath the surface as much as you want to. And then suddenly I, I had a chance to, to spend a bit more time thinking about it when I was back at university in, 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 uh, in Boston and realized, hang on, there's this great story that has been covered in lots of textbooks. It's been covered in lots of quite dry stories about economic history, but this, this deserves a wider audience and it deserves to be told in a way that, that is, you know, that actually befits the, the drama that was going on at the time. And that's, that's kind of how I realized, hang on, there's actually something in this that hasn't been, um, that hasn't been properly depicted so far. Actually, I mean, the, the confession is Christian, initially I thought Bretton Woods, maybe this should be a movie because it's got so many great <laughs> characters. It's got such a great kind of plot line. Um, and then I was kind of the various people I was talking to at the time, like in the, in the years kind of 2011, 12, when I was thinking about how do I, how do I do this? I, I, I spent a bit of time thinking about how one would turn it into a movie. Um, I spoke to some people involved in a film and they basically said to me, Hey, this, this is economics. You do realize this is economics. <laughs> there is no way you're going to make a film out of economics. Uh, Danny Boyle, actually, the guy who who directed all sorts, you know, Oscar-winning director. I saw, I met him at some random party and said, "Hey, I've got this this economic story. I think it's going to be a great fun." And he, and he just looks at me like I was this imbecile because economics does not make Hollywood movies, unfortunately. So, so I did the next best thing and I tried to make a you know a compelling book out of it, and that's what the summit is. I hope. Yeah, it's interesting you raise those topics. Um, I was listening to Charlie Rose show um, maybe a week ago, and they had uh, David McCullough on. Oh yeah, who was he? Made a great point that he said that the real life history, the drama of history, that often doesn't make it into scholarly books, is often more interesting than fiction that Hollywood comes up with. Totally, like you really don't. Because he wrote a book. He was talking about his new book about the Wright brothers. Yeah, and he said yeah. the drama behind it is is more interesting and more you know, worthy of, you know, being put on film than a lot of the, the fiction that's made up about his. I totally buy that. And I buy that particularly when it comes to economics, in part because no one ever tries to make fiction out of economics, but also because it's, um, you know, think about the, think about the Euro crisis in particular. There's, there's one period during the Euro crisis when, do you remember it was, um, it was the ash cloud. There was this volcanic eruption in Iceland and the, the, yeah. the, the ash cloud kind of uh, meant that most flights were grounded. And yet that was actually the peak of when Greece was starting to kind of blow up and you had all these problems around the Eurozone. And so you had various kind of presidents and prime ministers having to kind of, um, you know, make their way around Europe in these slightly stressed out circumstances, desperately trying to find the nearest private jet or the nearest train or the nearest plane they could get to, so they could meet each other and try and sort out the affairs of this nation that was close to the brink and people got like really really stressed at the time and uh there was lots of shouting uh lots of screaming at each other uh, and lots of odd circumstances and odd characters like you know dominic strauss khan the you know the now humiliated uh, former imf chief and nicholas sarkozy who spent a lot of his time you know screaming behind the scenes angela merkel like, there's, there's a, a fascinating cast list and that's just you know recent history and what i found looking back at 1944, you know, when Bretton Woods happened, was 
the cost list was even more extraordinary. And because, you know, we, we have many of the diaries and many of the accounts of the people who were there. And because, frankly, a lot of people who've written about this kind of moment in history have been economists who've been far more interested and, you know, understandably so. They've been far more interested in the structure. You know, was the, was the structure that the economists came up with in 1944 the right kind of structure? Did it mean that they genuinely solved uh, the problem of economic crises? And all of that is interesting, and I've covered it, you know, to some extent in my book. But for me, the, most, the biggest revelation was, God, this, the, the drama, the human drama is amazing. The strain that these people under was extraordinary. And the fact that they managed to come up with you know, perhaps the most important international agreements uh, of the 20th century in those circumstances and with all that was going on with their, you know, um, in their kind of minds and in their bodies is, is kind of amazing. <laughs> it really is. Yeah, that's one thing this book does very well is bring out the human drama. I mean, I, I remember sitting there, you know, reading it and thinking, my gosh, I mean, on page 254, I mean, not to give in too much away, but uh, the drinking songs that people came up with. Yes, um, 254, uh, my favorite. <laughs> yes, <laughs> Always aim for a good 254, that's what I, that's what I say. Yes. Um, yeah, the drinking, so, so there was it, a lot of drinking. Keynes, you know, Keynes, John Maynard Keynes, who was one of the protagonists, you know, said that he was worried that the whole thing getting all of these people together and putting them in this hotel in the middle of nowhere was, was going to lead to acute alcohol poisoning. Yeah. <laughs> and I think, I think he was actually pretty much on the button on that front because so much alcohol was consumed. And yet it all, you know, this amazing agreement came out of it. True, true. Amazingly so, even in between volleyball matches. Yeah. Um, so in a, if you could, for our audience, uh, break down what are the major points you make beyond the human drama, which, which you do very well, what points do you make about uh, the Bretton Woods? Yeah, well, in- so basically, if you, if you kind of think back to the 1930s and, and, and just bear in mind that what happened then was really similar to what happened in the last few years. You had this massive kind of boom that ended in a sudden bust and you had a stock market bust, which in turn led to a major depression uh, in the US, in Europe as well. And partly, uh, the, the other similarity is that what, what caused this was not necessarily the greed of bankers. I mean, there, there was the same kind of complaints you had then as you do now, which is the bankers are all to blame. And, and definitely there were some greedy bankers. There were some people in finance that didn't do the right thing. But it wasn't just that. It was down to the fact that the the international monetary system, you know, the, the system of exchange rates, the, the, the way that countries kind of fit, fitted their trade arrangements together, all of that essentially malfunctioned. Uh, and that's what happened then. And it's what happened, you know, kind of recently, particularly in the Eurozone, where you had this uh, single currency, which, which essentially malfunctioned and left many countries uh, in trouble. Indeed, they're still in trouble, you know, as we, as we speak. Greece looks like it might default and... and, and there's a good possibility it might have to leave the euro. And so a very similar situation then to, to what you had now, banks collapsing, a lot of people losing their jobs, uh, people facing kind of massive deprivation, massive inequality. Um, and into this, um, you, you kind of have to add the fact that all of that deprivation at that stage led, particularly in people's minds, uh, it led in part to the rise of Hitler, it led in part to the, the Second World War. And so there's this association in people's minds back then that if the economy kind of breaks down and if your financial system and your economic system collapse, then you may well have 
sure as night follows day, a rise in extremism after that. The rise in extremism might well lead to, to certain people kind of rising up and, and becoming kind of dictators. And that's there was a very clear line in people's minds between economic collapse and social collapse and then war. And because that indeed was what happened. And um, that's where Bretton Woods comes along. Basically, while the war was still going, there was this sense among a lot of policymakers, a lot of politicians, a lot of people that, listen, if we're going to try and prevent this from happening again, because look, you know, the, the, we had the First World War, economic collapse followed that. And in many ways, the economic collapse that, ha- that came between the two wars, so the 1930s, all of that, was basically down to the fact that you had a, you had a pretty kind of regimented system for how different countries exchange rates and things fitted together. And that's the, the, the basis, the foundation of economic and diplomacy. So the relations between different countries. You had a system that worked pretty well. It basically broke down during the, sec- the First World War because it was very expensive. And so the gold standard, which was the agreement by which uh, countries would fit their currencies together. So that system kind of collapsed. It was never really properly put back together again. That led to the 1920s. It led to the to the boom in the states. It led to the the crash, the stock market crash, uh, which in turn led to the depression and then to the war. You had that in people's minds, and they said to themselves, "Well, we need to do to 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 have something, have some kind of conference, have some kind of arrangement, whereby we can ensure that that doesn't happen all over again." And that basically is the the genesis of Bretton Woods. You had both the uh, American and the British kind of administrations said that to themselves, basically. We need to do something about this. And, and that is kind of where Bretton Woods come from. Although what's, what's not often appreciated is that they weren't the only ones who were doing that. At the same time, the Germans, um, so, so Hitler and his ministers, had the same idea too. And they said, well, listen, you know, we need to have, uh, we need to reconstruct the world's economic system to ensure that we don't have another depression. So everyone was kind of thinking of this during the war while the fighting was going on. Um, and there was a bit of a race to try to come up with whatever kind of system they could that it would, it would ensure that in the future you wouldn't have another economic crisis. And the, the, the Nazis actually got there first. They came up with a, a, a kind of system whereby um, actually it's not, not dissimilar, I should say, without wanting to sound too kind of apocalyptic. Not, not dissimilar in some ways to what to the uh, European Union and the uh, single European currency, the euro. But let's let's leave that aside for the time being. They they came up with a, a kind of a plan for the new world economic order. Um, it was publicised in 1940, I believe. Uh, I should confess my dates are probably my dates are probably all over the place. In the book, they're right though. I can I can assure you of that. Um, yeah. They came up they came up with the, this this template, um, this blueprint. Um, it was then leaked. I think it was the British got hold of it. And the British then say, well, we need to, to, to kind of um, use our propaganda to explain how terrible this is. And that's kind of where John Maynard Keynes comes into things. Now, Keynes is the great economist of the, the 20, 20, early 20th century. I, like, it sounds odd that you can have a celebrity economist, but this guy was, was by, a genuine celebrity. He was this very extravagant guy. He was always in the newspapers. He kind of photographed everywhere. He lived quite a glamorous life. He was married to the world's most famous ballerina, um, Lydia Lopakova, this Russian ballerina. He 
had become a household name in the in the 19 well just after the first world war so 1919 onwards he wrote something called the economic consequences of the peace which basically went back to what i just said a moment ago which is with it was a kind of accusation that the settlement after the first world war both in terms of things like reparations on germany and in terms of not sorting out the economic system was a total disaster and he he basically predicted in that listen because of the disaster that's been agreed in, in uh, Versailles, we will have another financial crisis, which in turn might well lead to another war. So he was seen as the guy who saw it all coming. Um, and so he was at this stage during the kind of war with bombs falling on London. He was working in the Treasury and they, when they got this um, blueprint of what the German plan was, uh, they gave it to Keynes and said, listen, this, this is this is. Uh, it would be frightfully um, disastrous if um, people thought that the Nazis had one up on us when it comes to the economic planning. So can you take a look at this and then write something explaining what nonsense it all is? Um, And of course, Keynes was one of those guys who you could never tell him what to do, um, which infuriated everyone who who worked with him. And so he he took one look at this, this blueprint and said, well, actually, the only thing I would change about this is I would I would exchange the the words um, access powers for the allies. In other words, we would basically <laughs> do the same plan ourselves um, and kind of adopt it and just like change change the identities of some of the players because he thought it was actually a pretty good idea. Um, and they thought, well, we can't have that. Um, so that's kind of when the British started thinking, okay, well, we need to come up with, with our own alternative. And what what these guys were were looking at was. The, the way that currencies fit together, and that sounds kind of esoteric, but basically it is everything. Um, the, when your currency has a certain value about, against another currency, that gives you an opportunity to try to devalue that currency if you want to get, you know, have a more favorable terms of trade. And when that happens, you're talking about economic war and massive kind of competitive devaluations. And that's basically what led to the depression or certainly was a key part of the depression. It's what a lot of people fear might happen now. Uh, to some extent, people look at quantitative easing in, in the US and the UK and the Eurozone and say, well, that's just a shorthand for different countries, different economic areas using the, their currencies to try to get one over each other. So the, the, the idea that Keynes had and that to some extent um, the Germans had and that the Americans would eventually come up with as well was we need some system that prevents them from doing that in the future so that you don't just have one country kind of taking life into its own hands and essentially take, you know, carrying out economic war against each other. And that's, that, that's kind of where it all started from. And over the course of the following years, the British started to work on a plan and the Americans independently started to work on their own plan as well. Um, and the man who was doing that in the States was uh, Harry Dexter White, who was um, a very different character to John Maynard Keynes. But Keynes was, was this kind of extravagant, flamboyant guy. Uh, he was you know, very liberal. Uh, he was a conscientious objector in the, uh, the First World War. Um, he came from a very privileged family. He'd, never, you know, he'd always been the kind of smartest guy in the room um, and had never really had to work in his life. Whereas Harry Dexter White was this guy who came... Yeah, pretty much from the wrong side of the tracks in Boston. Um, he really was not well off at all. He fought in the, in the First World War. In fact, that was kind of, you know, really the moment that it became obvious to him that he needed to change his life and to, to become 
an economist of all things. Um, and then he, the two of them started to kind of work together on what these bands were going to be because they were the two guys uh, in the UK and the US representing their treasuries. And kind of, as you probably might expect, given how different they were, you know, self-made American guy, wrong side of the tracks, Jewish, you know, from a pretty kind of poor family, had, hadn't ever been particularly prominent uh, and, you know, was a late developer uh, intellectually, uh, but, but very brilliant uh, by the time that, that, um, that he was doing this. And then on the other side, you've got Keynes, who's this guy who's basically totally privileged, um, incredibly patronizing, um, incredibly, incredibly brilliant as well, um, and um, didn't really uh, brook anyone telling him what to do. So the two of them basically had, they, they fought with each other um, and had lots of fights and uh, had lots of differences about how they would, um, uh, how they would structure this, this new kind of system of, of putting the world together, kind of economic system back together. Um, and they spent the next two years really uh, having that fight behind the scenes, which eventually became Bretton Woods in 1944. So that's kind of the backdrop of, of, of the story. But it, the thing to remember really is that for, for everyone at this stage, it wasn't just about getting an economic agreement together. I think for everyone, whether it's economists, whether it's politicians, everyone recognized what led to the Second World War was the economics. It was the economics that did it. Um, and that was you know, foremost in everyone's minds. So although there was fighting, obviously everyone's mind was on the fighting that was happening in the Western Front, the Pacific, and so on. That there was also a kind of cognizance that there needed to be this parallel battle to try to come up with a system that if and when they won, and this is both sides, if and when they won, they needed a system that ensured that they didn't have World War Three. And so much of the stuff that both Keynes and White were writing and saying was, was along the lines of, listen, we've got to sort out this system because it is not, you know, it's, it's going to let us down if we don't sort it out. Yeah, that, that, yeah, that makes sense what you're saying. And it's, it's an important point. Um, to, to kind of get where, where, where you go with the argument, I think it, it makes some sense to just for our, our listeners mm. to go over the gold standard. I, I'm not sure that many people, uh, especially, um, you know, the average American understands how it works or how it worked when it was when it was functioning. And I only ask this question because I'm not sure where this came from, but I've got quite a contingent of students where I teach at Ferris State here in Michigan in the United States who are convinced that all the economic problems we have as a country would be solved with the gold standard being, being yeah. put back into, yeah. Uh, yeah. into practice. And yeah. I just think you yeah. could say a little bit more about why the gold standard, you know, collapsed, you know, after World War One. The thing, I mean, or during yeah, I mean, it's, yeah. It, the, what's, what's so compelling about the gold standard is that it's, it's, it's a very simple system by economic terms, you know, people, people have at the moment right now, everyone has floating currencies and, you know, you're, um, that there is no rule, particularly in the US and the UK and most developed nations about the level of your currency. It just, it, it's a free market as to, to how it, how it moves around. Um, but back in the, the, the 19th century, um, the way things had just evolved, the way things people's mindsets were, was that you would have fixed currencies between different, uh, countries. And the gold standard, the idea behind it was that <clears throat> everyone's currency 
was valued in gold terms. So, you know, you had the dollar uh, valued at, well, eventually $35 an ounce. You had the pound, uh, which was which was kind of more valuable than that initially. And the idea was that that was a rigid kind of straitjacket between different countries, um, which would mean that when you were trading with uh, the US or indeed the UK, you knew precisely what the terms of trade were going to be. Um, the problem with the gold standard um, was, there's, well, there's a few things. First of all, when you had, it was reliance, it was all, because everything was attached to gold, uh, and because gold is, you know, this commodity, it's, it's something that you dig out of the ground. Um, when you had discoveries of gold, uh, or when gold, there was a shortage of gold, that would instantly affect what was going on in certain countries, because countries expand at a certain rate. Um, people expect kind of, you know, higher salaries, uh, usually each year. And if you suddenly had a kind of a shortage of gold, it meant there was just less money to go around um, in these countries. If you had a sudden discovery of a new gold mine, it meant that you had the potential of kind of massive inflation in these countries. So there, there, were, there was this kind of arbitrary nature to it, which is the, the fact that people, it was attached to gold. But then there's this other issue, which is that people were yoked together. So, you know, think about, think about the Eurozone. Think about the different countries that you have in there. You've got um, Germany, which is very efficient. Uh, you've got uh, France, which is kind of not quite as efficient as Germany in terms of just, you know, producing stuff and building it and getting it exported. And then, you know, far on the other side, you've got Greece. And the euro is kind of a gold standard without gold there in the center. But nonetheless, it's a kind of fixed currency system with lots of different independent countries in the middle. And the problem with the gold standard is, is the problem that we're seeing in the eurozone at the moment, which is that some countries tend to have their own kind of rhythms and at their own kind of efficiency levels. And it means they develop at a slightly different pace to each other. And, and, and that's just seems to be a relatively kind of inevitable part of, you know, having different cultures and different um, nations. And it, it means that within the gold standard and indeed within the euro, there's not really a kind of particularly socially acceptable way of adjusting for that. Basically, you can have a country like Greece, which is very inefficient, um, in, if it had a kind of floating rate currency, it would be able to devalue that currency. Its, it's goods that it makes inefficiently would suddenly become a lot cheaper because it's devalued its currency. And that's a form of adjustment. Whereas if, within the euro, it wants to, uh, let's say it wants to become more efficient. The only way it can do it is to impose massive read uh, pay cuts on its people. Um, and that's what's happened over the course of the last few years. And, you know, we can see where it's led. It's led to essentially kind of riots. It's led to massive uh, dissatisfaction. And it's led to um, a government being elected, which basically says, we're, you know, we've had enough of this. And that's kind of what happened with the gold standard in the course of the 19, you know, 20s, particularly in the UK, uh, where the country wasn't particularly efficient. Um, it went back to the gold. So the gold standard kind of fell apart in the war. Like when, when you have a war um, and you need to spend lots of money, basically printing lots of money and building lots of weapons and all of that, then the idea that you're able to kind of rigidly 
keep your affairs in line with gold, so keep your currency in line with gold, kind of falls away. The idea that you're only able to to, to make as many guns as you have gold in the bank, you know, in the Bank of England, just that seemed like pointless at the time. So the gold standard kind of they got rid of it, but then they tried to impose it again after the war had passed. And what happened was people didn't like the idea that they were suddenly going to have to take kind of um, pay cuts, uh, but which, which was the inevitable consequence of gold. It was very similar to what's happening in Greece at the moment. In order to get into the gold standard, people had massive pay cuts imposed on them uh, in the 1920s in the UK. And the same thing happened then as what's happening in Greece at the moment. You had massive, if, well, I don't, not so much riots, but you certainly had marches. You had um, uh, strikes. You had government after government kind of getting booted out. Um, and eventually you had a mutiny in the Navy, uh, the Invergordon mutiny. It was kind of like a semi-mutiny, actually. It was not quite the mutiny of the bounty. But nonetheless, it was, it, it was, it, things, people were very unhappy because when you're in a gold standard or something similar to a gold standard, the only way, if you have a recession or something like that, the only way that you can adjust that you can kind of get your economy back to par where it is, where the currency is in line with gold, which, like I said, is absolutely essential to everything. The only way you can do that is through imposing massive pay cuts on people. And, and, and it just seems in a democratic world, that is not something people particularly like. They like to have pay rises or at least the semblance of pay rises each year. And it's quite difficult to envisage that in a, in a gold standard system. The, the advantage of a gold standard is that the imbalances between different countries, so indebtedness of the US, indebtedness of the UK, and when I say indebtedness, I'm talking about the extent to which they're borrowing from overseas. You know? So that's the same as, as, as saying that they have big trade deficits. If you're borrowing masses from overseas and you're kind of take, you know, buying lots of goods from, from overseas, the, the theory is in a gold standard system that you wouldn't have uh, as many of those imbalances. But the, whether the kind of, you know, social discord is, is the price you'd want to pay for that, that's, that's another matter. And th- th- does that kind of make sense? So it's, it's... It, it, it makes sense. And it's a critical point because, I mean, in a nutshell, what would happen, a lot of these, these students that I have are big Ron Paul supporters. Um, well, there we are. The Ron Paul revolution. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure what they're going to think about his son. Uh, that's another matter. But they somehow think it's going to be better for the common person, that they're, it's going to be beneficial to them as consumers and as citizens. And nothing that I've read in your book, you know, I think, drives it home in a way that the average you know, person who's not an expert in economics can, can certainly comprehend, is it often ends up hurting you know, the common person. Exactly. The, That's what happened in the U.S. In the, you know, in, in the, towards the end of the, um, uh, the, the kind of 19th century. The, the, the common person, as it were, the, you know, William Jennings Bryant, various people ran for, for president who were against the gold standard because, yeah, like you say, they, they said that it was going to, it, that it was already having a massive toll on normal people, particularly agricultural workers. And, mm-hmm. you know, the whole point was don't, do not crucify us on a, on a cross of gold. That was, that was, it, it, it was, it was, very damaging to, to, to many people. And, I, and the point is, if you are making economic policy in a vacuum, then actually the gold standard makes plenty of sense because it means that diff- countries 
find it much more difficult to live beyond their means, which you know basically means have these big trade deficits, have these big kind of current account deficits, get massively indebted. The problem, though, is that it also makes just life a misery for so many people. And yeah. it seems to me, based on experience, to be basically incompatible with mass, the mass franchise. The moment, the moment democracy came along, people started to vote against the gold standard and they voted in favor of a system which would allow them to have pay rises. And I don't see how you can have one and not the other. No. No, it's 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 a very very uh, good point. Uh, I think it's time to transition to uh, the actual summit. Uh, and what what I found interesting is the the blueprints, at least from you know the frameworks that uh, Harry Dexter White and John Maynard Keynes come up or came up with, excuse me, to create a stable international monetary system, and how those those larger debates between them played out at the conference. So I was wondering if you could just give us some background on in general, what White and Keynes thought about when they when they faced the problem of setting up an international monetary system that worked for everybody. Yeah, well, the thing, yeah. the thing they had in common was that they both agreed, and if they came to this kind of independently, they both wanted a system. And that's kind of, that's quite important. You know, there are lots of people, I think, particularly in Congress, uh, who just didn't want to have a system. They wanted, you know, it was each country for themselves. It was laissez-faire. So if you want to run things in a certain way, then you run them in a certain way. And, you know, who cares about everyone else? Uh, and the idea that both White and Keynes came to, and it was kind of, you know, controversial for many people, was that you should have some kind of an institution in the middle of the international monetary system that basically sorts people out if they get into trouble. And it was a, like a lender of last resort an international kind of central bank that basically when you have a country which starts to run out of money would lend them money. And, and that's basically the, that's, that's crucial, you know, because the alternative was to have something like the gold standard and then just have ad hoc arrangements when someone got into trouble. When I say get into trouble, I mean the Greeces, I mean uh, the many European countries who defaulted uh, in the 1920s and 1930s. Um, so they, they both had that idea, and that's, that's kind of crucial. But they had very different um, ideas of, of how, that, how that system would work. For Keynes, he wanted this system to be kind of an integral. So you wanted, basically, you'd have different countries. You'd have their currencies, which would be kind of tied together, more or less. You'd have some kind of yardstick in the middle, not gold, ideally, but you need some sort of order, but you don't want it to be as rigid as the gold standard. And you kind of want an institution which, which steps in and which lends people money when they need to. For Keynes, he wanted it to be an institution which would step in and hand out money quite regularly. Um, and, you know, that it would be like a health spa, whereas... For, for White, he wanted this, it to be like the emergency room. So basically, you know, you only go if you totally run out of money, whereas Keynes wanted to be an integral part of it. Now, that's one difference. The other difference, and this is the kind of key bit that I think a lot of people talk about, was the fact that Keynes wanted a system whereby if you were a country and you were getting massively indebted, or if you were a country and you were getting, you had a massive kind of lendings to other countries, so... That's for that. Imagine China today or Germany today. Both of them would have to be penalized equally for that. 
and the, the key thing here is to go back to, to what caused the financial crisis in the 1930s and indeed what had contributed to the financial crisis this time around, which is that you had massive kind of imbalances. You had some countries with massive debt. You had some countries with massive savings. In the 1920s, it was actually the US which had all the savings and it was uh, the UK and a few other countries which had lots of debt. In the 19, well, in the, in the kind of 2000s, it was obviously the US, which was very indebted, and China that had all the savings. But as far as he was concerned, the point was not who was the culprit. The point was there are these big gaps between all of us. And when there are those gaps, you tend to get trouble. I mean, that's, that's about as kind of, uh, kind of reductive as possible, but that, that, that is, that, that's kind of what it comes down to. And Keynes was, you know, Keynes' position was, listen, the people who are doing the lending should be as culpable as the people who are doing all the borrowing. And that kind of makes some sense, doesn't it? The problem, though, is that um, the people who are doing the lending, the, the kind of international system, has just historically always worked on the basis that if you're, if you're Germany, you're, you're doing the right thing. And if you're Greece, you're the one that needs to sort things out. Um, there's this kind of strange moralistic point that the, the debtor is the one who always needs to make the adjustment. So it's Greece that needs to <laughs> change its, you know, change its currency. Uh, is sorry, not its currency, but it needs to change its economic policies so that people get less, uh, have less money. Um, but Keynes's point was: listen, the Germanys need to do the adjustments. The Chinas need to do the adjustment. They need to be basically penalised for running these big trade surpluses. And it's a very controversial point, but. His point was that this system, the Bretton Woods system, would ensure that that would happen and the International Monetary Fund or indeed whatever was in the middle of it. Uh, he, he had a kind of a different term for it. You know, you'd, you'd have the kind of uh, the, this international currency called Bancor and it would work in a slightly different way. But fundamentally, um, there would be an onus on the countries with the biggest surpluses as well as the countries which were the biggest debtors. Now, it's no surprise why he did that. Britain was the biggest debtor. And America had the biggest surplus. So he was basically saying, listen, don't put it all on us uh, in the future. And of course, that didn't go very far. America had all of the money and, you know, all of the authority at this stage. And so they basically said no. And Harry Dexter White's plan was very different to Keynes's. And it, it essentially didn't have that key element in it. It didn't have an international currency. Uh, it did have the IMF in, in its, the middle of it. So a system... Uh, whereby countries could get bailed out, uh, but it wasn't quite as generous as what Keynes was envisaging. Um, and that Harry Dexter White system was the one that eventually was implemented. I mean, no surprises, America was the one with all of the influence at this stage. Uh, in a way, for me, part of the surprise is that Keynes managed to have as much influence as he did, which was not masses, but enough to, enough to be able to kind of um, to sway the debate to some extent. Yeah, it's a very interesting story, and there, there's so many ins and outs of the Bretton Woods uh, summit that you talk about, or that you write about, and we don't have, we don't have time to go into. Uh, but what I think is a very interesting part of the story is how the United States dollar became the linchpin of the monetary, international monetary system during the conference, and how it was tied to gold. Mm -hmm. I was wondering if you could say a little bit more about how that happened, rather than creating an international currency. So, yeah, it's it, the... the the kind of core of the system in the future would be that rather than having gold at the center point, you and, and every different currency around the world tie to that. Because what you know, experience had shown is that that didn't work. 
um, rather than that, you would have the dollar, the US dollar would be tied to gold. At this stage, the dollar was such an internationally recognized, such a kind of, you know, reliable, credible currency. You know, America was really the only country out there that had money, um, particularly in, in, you know, amongst the allies. And so the dollar would be the only kind of uh, currency which you could reasonably expect that anyone would want to convert into anything, including gold. So you'd have still have the dollar in the center of it. You'd have the dollar would be kind of would have a, a gold value. Um, and to some extent, that was just to root it in what people were familiar with. You know, they were familiar with a system where gold was kind of somewhere at the center of it. And the dollar was, was tied to gold. And then everyone else's currencies would be tied to the dollar. And the idea was in, so that you wouldn't have competitive devaluations in the future, if anyone wanted to devalue their currency, they would have to go to the International Monetary Fund and give them notice. Um, and there are kind of all these preconceptions that, because for, for many people, they look back at this and they say, well, the moment, this was the moment that America became the world's economic superpower because its role, the dollar's role, was formalized um, in the international system. It became the international currency. Um, and, you know, to some extent that's true, although, frankly, it was already the case. The dollar was already the central currency in the world's economic system because, like I said, everything else was pretty non-credible and the dollar, the dollar was, was a credible currency. So the, the, there are various kind of conspiracy theories that say uh, this was Harry Dexter White's grand plan. You know, Harry White went to this conference and, and wanted to establish uh, the, the key thing he wanted was to get the dollar uh, at the center, at the core of the world's economic system. I mean, for me, that's kind of nonsense. It was already at the center of the world's economic system. Um, but the, the Bretton Woods conference kind of just formalized what everyone already kind of appreciated was, was the, the, the status. Um, and actually, it was, a, it was a British guy, rather than it being an American plot to put the dollar at the center of the system, it was a British guy who actually suggested, listen, rather than just having... because at this stage, they needed to come up with, they needed something in the middle of the world's economic system, which would be a kind of anchor, which would, which would you know, make people think that all of these currencies were actually attached to something. Um, and obviously, part of it was gold, but then what else? You know, you, you need something else that, that is then attached to, to gold. Um, and they had this kind of vague terminology um, uh, in, in the kind of uh, articles and they wanted to replace that terminology, uh, which, which was kind of convertible currencies. They wanted to kind of uh, make that a little bit more specific. And actually, it was a Briton who said, well, why don't you just put the dollar in there? Because everyone knows the dollar is as good as gold. And so in, in the dollar went. Um, and it, later on, in the years that followed, that became more and more important because the dollar became the center point of the world's economic system. Uh, you know, when international trade happened, the dollar was a key part of it. Uh, when you have a big kind of commodity or whatever, you denominate it in, in, in dollars rather than any, any other currency, so oil, gold, etc. But um, for a lot of people, they kind of saw this moment that the, the US dollar formally became a part of the Bretton Woods agreements as, uh, as a crucial kind of moment. Really, it was more like a formalization of what, what was going on in the world uh, at that stage. Although, latterly, when the system came to an end, which, you know, and when I talk about the system, I mean the Bretton Woods system, whereby you had uh, 
gold in the middle. You had all of these kind of currencies which were fixed to gold. When that came to an end, the, it, was, it came to an end essentially because the dollar lost its potency, lost its ability to, um, to be convertible to, to gold. Um, Richard Nixon, LBJ, you had a lot of very expensive kind of uh, things that happened in the 1960s like Vietnam, uh, like the Great Society. And, and that basically meant that the US got into a big deficit and suddenly people didn't really believe that you could convert $35 uh, into, into gold. Um, and then at that stage, everyone, I think in hindsight, looked back and said, oh, okay, that's interesting because that was all part of an American plot uh, to put the dollar in the center of the world system. And, you know, in hindsight, historians quite like to apportion uh, blame to, 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 to certain people and moments. <laughs> But, but somebody. yeah, but 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 really, that that wasn't the intention at the time. The intention at the time was basically, listen, we we need something in the centre of this system. We'll have gold, but frankly, because a lot of people out there don't want to have another gold standard, um, we need something that is akin to gold. And the, mo- the thing that was most akin to gold in the world at that stage was the dollar. Yeah, and it it's. It... You, the way that you you show it in your book, it shows the contingency of history. It, it, it seems like I think the guy's name was Dennis Robertson. That's right. Yeah. Pretty, pretty much made the proposal without running it by a lot of people, and it, it's it's right. It came to the idea where they had just they skirted around the issue for so long. Yeah. He just decided enough is enough. We've got to move on with this summit. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Uh, so yeah. And another thing I found interesting about the summit. Um, is the quota, the quote unquote uh, quota war that took place. And I found it fascinating in terms of just how people behave, how history is made, not just in terms of economic issues, but in terms of personalities, in terms yeah. of ideas. Yeah. I mean, you've got France who's unhappy about China's quota, uh, just in Russia, you know, is all over the place. It just, it's interesting how personalities and slights can really influence how history unfolds. It's, what if you say a little bit more about that? Yeah, no, it, it, yeah. That's, that's totally the case. And, I, and actually, it's, it's striking how much, you know, it's that kind of Mark Twain point that history, uh, history doesn't repeat itself, but it does rhyme or something. He said something along those lines. But essentially, if you look at, um, if you look at back, back then, um, they all, so they'd spent a lot of time talking about, and when I say they, in this case, I mean mainly the UK and the US, spent a lot of time behind the scenes talking about, right, what's the structure of this going to be? And it goes back to what we kind of covered a while ago. What kind of system are you going to have? But then once you kind of sorted most of that out, the big question that remained was, um, okay, you've got an institution in the center of this, the International Monetary Fund. You've got another institution called the World Bank, and, and they wanted to, that was kind of slightly separate. The, world, the idea of the World Bank was it was going to be the institution which was, was going to help finance the recovery. So, you know, in countries... Uh, particularly that had been war-torn, the World Bank was going to help provide a bit of investment for them. But you have the International Monetary Fund and the World Bank. The question is, how how big um, a kind of voting say does each different country have at the International Monetary Fund and indeed the World Bank? And the way they worked out that out was by giving different countries a quota. And the quota basically meant this is the amount of cash you put into the fund which is also the amount of voting rights that you have. So it's a pretty good proxy for your supposed influence in the international system. And of course, at Bretton Woods itself, in fact, the vast majority of the discussion was about this, because 
each different country and you know all of the them had come from all around the world all of these delegates um each different country of course wanted as big a quota as they could at the international monetary fund to show how powerful they were basically and also in to give it would give them a little bit more right to to withdraw cash in the future but basically it was a kind of supremacy you know if they could come back with with a bigger uh, a bigger quota then the delegates would feel that they, they'd done a good job. So there was lots of fighting behind the scenes uh, about this. The, the difficulty for a lot of the delegates was that basically the ranking of who got which quota was decided beforehand by Roosevelt, really. This was, he wanted the US to be the biggest country uh, by quota, uh, followed by the UK, uh, followed by uh, Russia, followed by China, and then he didn't really care about anyone else. He was like the big four, as he called them, were <laughs> at the top. And having come up with that, that ranking, um, he was then, he was then, you know, he gave that, he handed that down to, you know, uh, Henry Morgenthau, who was the uh, Treasury Secretary. And he in turn gave it to Harry Dexter White, and Harry Dexter White in turn gave it to one of his junior economists, a guy called Ray Mikesell, and said, okay, so here's the ranking that we want. Um, can you come up with a formula that, that justifies that so it doesn't just look like a kind of, you know, uh, you stick your finger in the air and come up with whatever you think like. And uh, so this guy went off and had to try and come up with some kind of an economic mathematical formula that would take things like the size of various different economies, the trade, the amount of trade they had and all of that, and turn it into a kind of a compelling um, ranking that, that everyone would agree with. The difficult thing was countries like France were significantly bigger than China. And so how could you possibly make a ranking that ignored this fundamental kind of size difference um, and basically said, yeah, China should be the fourth biggest, not France. And he spent hours and hours trying to work this thing out and eventually came up with uh, some kind of a formula. Um, it took a lot of time because obviously he needed to to do some some serious kind of uh, mathematical gymnastics, um, and he came up with it. Obviously, it infuriated the French, it infuriated most of the Europeans, whose economies, most of which were, were far bigger than China's at this stage. Um, and so, behind the scenes, there were lots of. At one stage, the the French delegate called Pierre Mendes France found Ray Mikesell and started screaming at him at the top of his lungs, half in French, half in English you know, demanding what to know how he had come up with this bogus uh, formula. Um, you know, and he had a point because, you know, the formula <laughs> was essentially bogus. The ironic thing, of course, is in retrospect, that formula was then used uh, to help come up with the rankings and the quotas at the, the United Nations. And a derivation of that formula um, is still used today to work out the quotas wow. at the International Monetary Fund. In fact, um, they, in 2010, in Korea, they had to try and do another re-evaluation of the quotas um, at the IMF because, as you know, the world economy has changed a lot in the last kind of 20 years. And China, and, you know, at, at that stage, Brazil had a smaller quota than, for instance, Belgium. So it was, you know, faintly bizarre. Um, but, <laughs> the, you know, I know the guy who, who, who was writing the quota, you know, rewriting the quota. And it was the same kind of process. You just you come up with something vaguely 
you know, you, you, you stick your finger in the air, you know the ranking you want to get to, <laughs> and then you try and devise something that, that broadly gets there with a spreadsheet. Uh, this, of course, using a spreadsheet these days rather than a slide rule, but the idea is, is still the same, and it's, it's remarkable, really, that we're still having the same battles. And the IMF, I have final point, really, but the, the IMF right now is having a massive, massive battle with trying to get these new quotas enforced. Um, and the main country which, which won't sign up to them is the US, ironically, because the US doesn't lose any of its, um, any of its kind of voting rights. But nonetheless, um, quotas and your supposed power at these big institutions are turned out to be one of the biggest kind of sticking points at Bretton Woods, which is, is sad, really, because the, the th it should have been all about how do we save the world economy and ensure that we come up with a decent structure. But instead, it's just all about national interests, and, and that, that's what quotas really were. Yeah, it sounds like human beings acting like human beings. Exactly, too. yeah. Quite honest. And Ed, I'd wanna, I want to thank you for taking so much time to talk to me, but I, I have to ask you uh, two more questions. Mm. If you don't mind. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the first one is, I mean, you do so much, we're going to have to skip over it for time purposes. You really give a good insight into the complexities after World War II of Bretton Woods and action versus, you know, the British economic situation, Cold War considerations, uh, the loan that the United States gave Britain that John Maynard Keynes thought wasn't uh, generous enough, Marshall Plan. I mean, all these issues are dealt with very effectively. But at the end of the day, I was wondering if you could tell the listeners uh, in a nutshell why the Bretton Woods systems failed when it did and, and went out during the uh, yeah. Nixon. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, there's, 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 there's many theories still about it. Um, I, th I think, like, take, to take a step back, what, what's, um, what's remarkable is during that system, so from, you know, the late 1940s to 19, early 1970s or the late 60s, so it was a short period of time, but nonetheless, you know, that period was one of the most stable for economic growth that we've ever seen. It had the fewest financial crises, the fewest recessions. Uh, it had, you know, inflation was reasonably low. Almost every metric that you look at when you judge how the world economy is doing, that was a golden era um, for, for the global economy. And, you know, that may, there are many factors, I'm sure, that contributed to that. Demographic factors, just simple recovery after the Second World War. There are, there are many reasons, you know, innovation. But nonetheless, um, it, you cannot find another time when, when everything else seemed to be quite so rosy. And it's my contention that the Bretton Woods system was at least partly uh, responsible for that. Um, but the problem was it was a set of rules, and it was a set of rules that basically um, constrained both what politicians could do and what financiers could do. And for politicians, it meant that when they were setting economic policy, particularly in the UK, you, you, you could only allow your economy to grow or to shrink based on your international kind of economic standing. So if you had a currency that was looking like, basically, if, if it looked like you were getting into a situation where you as a country were having to borrow too much, so getting a big current account deficit, you had to try and act. You had to try and put interest rates up. And that, that was tricky. And I don't, you know, that they didn't much, they, they, they found that difficult. And the UK in particular was massively indebted after the Second World War, never really got over it. And so it had a very bumpy ride. Um, the financiers um, had lots of rules over the extent to which they could move money around the world because Bretton Woods came 
in tune or came alongside lots of rules about capital flows. And they also, you know, there was the, they, would, they didn't like that one bit. They didn't like it when they came in. And they spent the next kind of 20 years trying to lobby against them, you know, with increasing success. Um, and most, most importantly of all, everything was reliant on the U.S., uh, and the way it ran its economy and it, reliance on it for the first 20 years, essentially kind of printing quite a lot of dollars because the dollar was, as I mentioned, the world international currency as a result of kind of happenstance and the Bretton Woods system formalized it. So the, everyone was reliant on the dollar, uh, on America printing lots of dollars and flowing them around the world. Um, because if you wanted to buy a barrel of oil, you needed dollars to do it. Um, but at the same time, the entire system was reliant for its success on America kind of behaving itself fiscally and ensuring that $35 was always going to be enough to buy an ounce of gold in people's minds. And the problem was that in the 19, late 1960s, as I said, that, that assumption started to be challenged and eventually that kind of broke down. Uh, and so the linchpin of the system, which was the dollar, uh, came under question. And then eventually Nixon decided that um, rather than kind of continuing to kind of constrain the, the economic prospects of the US, he would do, do what was called close the gold, the gold window. So basically not allow people to convert dollars uh, into gold at a fixed price. And that, that was the moment that Bretton Woods uh, came to an end. And I think also, you know, I think pragmatically, there was also a change in the mindset. People believed in fixed currencies up, up till, you know, the mid 20th century. But by the 1970s, they didn't really believe that in the ability of central banks to maintain a fixed currency anymore, particularly when they had such divert, you know, such differences bubbling underneath the surface. And so that also played a part as well. And I think everyone was relatively relieved by the 19, kind of late 1960s that they could try something else. And I think there's like finally, my, but just based on pragmatic experience, well, two things. Number one, the system always works quite well when you have uh, an unchallenged international hegemonic state kind of uh, there in the middle. And I think perhaps to some extent the U.S., lost some of its uh, sheen economically in that period. And so that, that undermines people's credibility in the system. And you had you know, Germany rising at that stage and Japan starting to rise. And, and, and secondly, um, yeah, it just, uh, I can't even remember what I was going to say secondly. I kind of slightly lost there. But I mean, I, I think that the, the credibility of the fixed rate system really just broke down at that stage. Um, and it was never going to, you were never, the, the genie was out of the bottle, I think, really. And, and I think you were never going to be able to put it back in. Yeah, that makes sense. And it sounds, your account uh, it reinforces a point that I already, um, just from my reading of Nixon, he cared much more about politics and how he was going to appeal to American voters than fixing the system in some kind of stable way. Yeah. And he's, his, I think your quote you use is like, he didn't give a damn about the lira. Yes. Or, or something like that, and I, that sounds perfectly believable to me. Yeah, exactly. I, I, th that's, I suppose that's it. I mean, like, I think there was people thought 
And I think this is a different era. You know, people, whether that's policymakers or, yeah, policymakers first and foremost would think in economic terms. Uh, sorry, not in economic, but in international economic terms. So they, they, when they were thinking about policy, when they were thinking about interest rates, when thinking about all of that, they would think, how does this make our country fit into the international <laughs> system? And, and that's very different to, you know, to, to now when people set interest rates, when they do all of this stuff. They think about their, you know, their, their people and they think locally. And I don't think you can have a system which has quite such an international basis um, while people are making policy that's very domestic. Uh, and that, I think, you know, was, was a gradual shift over the course of the second half of the 20th century. Yeah, it's interesting. And, you know, just to conclude our interview here, I mean, you, you don't have to go into extensive detail, but, you know, what has been lost? Are we much worse off today in 2015 when we have floating, you know, currency exchange rates? Is that a system that's sustainable? Is it? I think, I, like, I, it's funny, I, when I came to, to write the book, um, I, I, I thought, great, after I finished writing this book, finally, I'll have an answer to that question. Um, and, <laughs> and, Unfortunately, uh, you know, as often is the case, I've kind of come out of it think, feeling far more uh, undecided about it. I think that, remember when the financial crisis happened, there were lots of people saying, we need a new Bretton Woods. Um, and what that meant was, listen, we've got this system, this international system. Clearly, it's not really working right now. And it does look like we've, We've, it's, we've done this sticking plaster solution. We haven't necessarily, we haven't necessarily kind of solved all of the imbalances, all of the problems, all the frailties of the, the global system that led to this crisis. So what we might need now is a, a kind of 30,000 foot view, like to take a 30,000 foot view to totally overhaul what we've got. Um, now that never happened. Um, we didn't really even get close. And... My, my issue is that I'm not clear. I haven't heard any decent suggestions about what kind of a system would replace what we have at the moment. Um, back in the 1930s, you, you genuinely had people thinking very blue sky thoughts about stuff. You know, some people thinking about kind of floating currencies, some think, people thinking about, you know, international uh, monetary funds and different uh, structures whereby they could kind of... Uh, kind of tie their currencies together and so on. You have people thinking about international currencies. It was quite a kind of bold period in terms of uh, the intellectual side of things. Whereas now, I, I, I struggle to think of any kind of economists who, who are coming up with interesting, feasible, bold ideas about how we structure the world economy in the future. I don't think a gold standard is the answer um, because of the reasons we talked about earlier. I just, I, you know, it, it seems to be incompatible with modern democracy. People don't like the, the pain that goes with being part of a gold standard. They seem to like kind of a system that's a bit more, a bit less rigid and allows them to, to get a bit of a pay rise. Um, but by the same, and by the same token, I don't, I don't know if fixed exchange rates are, um, credible anymore, given we've had such a long period in which people have tried and failed to fix their exchange rates together. And, you know, the euro, whatever happens over the course of the next few years might well be another example uh, of 
of how that how we you know we struggle to do that or then by the same token who knows i mean maybe they'll sort things out uh there is at least a, a slight chance of that maybe they'll sort things out and the euro will be a really interesting template for how the world economy can work in the future but ultimately everything comes back down because because you know everything is about how countries trade with each other in, in the end. You know, you have economies with, and, and they need to, to, to trade with each other. They need to flow past money around. And that's the other side of things. They're trading with each other, but they're also, there's this massive flow of money between borders. Everything kind of comes back down to that. And it comes back down to trying to ensure that that system doesn't um, become kind of, you know, build up these big imbalances between countries. That, that mean that suddenly there could be a moment where one country just doesn't have any money. And um, we need to try to, to, to think slightly more deeply about how, how we kind of regiment that uh, relationship because we haven't sorted it out. And, you know, I think at the moment we're just, we, we will have another crisis in the future and it will in some way be down to the level of indebtedness in certain nations, um, and we'll be back to, to the precisely the same problem. Um, and it's slightly depressing that no one kind of has an answer <laughs> for it, and 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 I don't. Uh, I, you know, I've got to confess, I, I I don't. But frankly, I don't because I don't think anyone does at the moment. Um, because I don't know, like, to, not enough not enough thought has has gone into it. And I suppose that I, I hope that that in thinking a little bit about the past and about what happened in Bretton Woods, people might become a little bit more aware of, of what needs to go into it if we are going to try and sort out uh, the system. Um, I, that's a total kind of non-answer, Christian. I apologize because there is... Well, it's, a reason, it's a reasonable answer. And it's, I like how you, at the end of the book, you compare the search for this perfect international monetary order to the pursuit of the, uh, what is it, the Philosopher's Stone? Yeah, the theory of everything. Yeah. Yes, uh, exactly. Yeah, it may just be it may be a total um, um, kind of chimera. It may just be impossible. I, I, but but I think that doesn't stop you kind of searching for it because because the point is Bretton Woods was a time when it seemed to work a lot better. And it's not like we are any different. It's not like we're smarter or less smart. It's not like the economy is any is fundamentally any different. It really isn't. You know, things are very similar in many ways to how they are. You know, were back in the nineteen thirties and the nineteen forties. The last experience of the last ten years ought to have ought to have shown us that. That what it takes, though, is it takes some bold people, uh, perhaps perhaps fueled by alcohol, perhaps fueled by you know, kind of like this desperate <laughs> desire to prove themselves. Perhaps you know, driven by the fact that they know that. One of them knows that he's going to die at some point. That's you know that that was one of the backstories going on. One of them, you know, was was having all sorts of, of kind of mysterious uh, meetings with the Russians, Harry Dexter White. There's perhaps you know all of this stuff about how individual you know the individual actors behave is important because in the end, the reason Bretton Woods happened was because of those individuals involved and because they had a kind of a vision. And I hope that in the future we'll have some people who have similar visions in our economic system and can actually do something about it. But we're still we're still waiting, unfortunately. Yeah, you, you put that very well. And 
yeah, I, I know in the book you you go out of your way to show that the press had a lot of access to the yeah. Mount Washington Hotel. Yeah. But I'm, I'm still trying to wrap it through my mind how, what would happen if you had pictures or Instagram pictures or whatever of, you know, Russians you know, <laughs> dancing or playing volleyball or, you know, Harry Dexter White singing on a video, you know, the, his, his, his songs about, you know, bury me with alcohol. Yeah. I wonder how that would, you know. I know, but you know what, like... I... I, I was I, I expected when I came to it that, you know, given the way it had been written up in the past, which is to say, you know, pretty boringly, I'm afraid. Um, I thought, well, clearly there's not going to be any interesting photos or any interesting testimony about how how drunk everyone was getting and stuff. But, you know, on the contrary, there's these photos of people. You know, there, there are some photos of, I think, the um, the Russians and the Americans after one of those volleyball games. There's a photo I found of Harry Daxter White playing volleyball. There's photos of one of the dance instructors of people playing golf there. There's photos of them late at night. And there's, there's documents that they put together when they were roaring drunk at Bretton Woods, <laughs> like which, which accidentally, there's one document which accidentally, and it's the, when everything was over, like, you know, hours of late nights and things, they were, everyone was totally exhausted. They, they went down to, to the bar at the bottom of the hotel and, and kind of in their drunkenness drew up this document for a mock kind of international ballyhoo fun, which they, which, which was, yes. um, and, 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 you know, you can tell they were, they were drunk when they wrote this and then accidentally because it looked, you know, cause this was like a pastiche of, of, of many of the documents they've been drafting cause it looked like an official document. It then got put into the official accounts and is, is still in, you know, the, the official, um, documents of the FDR administration <laughs> because no one really realized at the time that this was a complete joke. Um, so there are still kind of, you know, uh, fossils of the, of the kind of chaos that happened at that time. And it just shows you for me, I, this, this book, you know, that it's, it's not as kind of, it's not like intently kind of all about, the international macroeconomic structures, a lot of it is about the characters involved. But that's not yeah. just because that's so interesting, which it is. And it's not just because it makes it more readable, but it's also because that stuff matters. Like it really matters. It mattered then and it matters now. Absolutely. And once again, Ed, thanks for taking the time to speak with me. I, I enjoyed reading the book. It's something that I think a person who doesn't have a lot of background in economics or history could pick up and read get a good understanding of economics and the the human drama involved. So I'm very glad you wrote the book. Good. And to conclude, I just thought you could say a few words to the listeners about your future plans, whatever they may be. Well, I kind of, um, so I'm, I'm, I'm basically just a jobbing hack. I, I'm a journalist. And so I, you know, I, I've, I've spent the last, um, the last few months covering the UK elections, which, which have been totally fascinating. There's another, another example of, uh, um, individuals and their frailties um yes but uh so you know i i haven't got another book kind of on the go at the moment i'm, I'm kind of in, very interested in the euro crisis and, and i think at some point that needs to be made into a book it's got all of the same the same kind of human drama and economic imports uh as Bretton woods and so i think you know in the longer run, maybe I'll maybe I'll turn my mind to that. I, I'm I'm surprised that no one else has come up with a decent book of it so far because there's so much good stuff in there. But uh, that may well be something. Um, but um, I, I I spent the last year recovering from Bretton Woods because <laughs> <laughs> it's been you know an undertaking. So 
so I think I'm getting to the end of that recovery and I'll start turning my mind to, to um, what's next. All right. Sounds good. And I, I look forward to that. And once again, Ed, thanks for talking to me. And maybe who knows down the line, we'll, we'll meet each other somewhere. But I wish you the best of luck in the future. Excellent. Thanks very much. It's been fascinating.